available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. Uh, I'm Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on the 3rd of January, 2024. Coming up in this week's programme, we're looking at New Year customs around the world. Uh, We're hearing the poignant story of the friendship between rugby legend Kevin Sinfield and his former teammate Rob Burrows. Um, We have more, Margaret has more of uh, Susie Dent's musings. Uh, We're also hearing about the adventures of a vet abroad. Um, As usual, there's a segment on the hurdy-gurdy days with Alan, uh, and there's something on the Godiva sisters as well. All that coming up, but first we go to the news with Pete uh, and Elaine. Outlook News. A singer-turned-broadcaster and community worker is among five Coventry people recognised on the New Year's Honours List 2024. Musician Sandra Godley, who is also a BBC CWR presenter and trustee of Community Radio Station Plus, has also been made an officer of the Order of the British Empire, an OBE, for charitable service to the community in Coventry. Professor Carol Ann Doyle from Birmingham City University and Coventry-based Kate Lee, Chief Executive of the Alzheimer's Society, have been awarded OBEs for services to nurse, education and to charity, respectively. Paula Rosemary Dias, Deputy Chief Executive of the Coventry and Warwickshire Local Enterprise Partnership, has been made an MBE for services to the community in the West Midlands, while Robert Arnett has been selected for a British Empire Medal, a BEM, for his services to the community in Coventry. The New Year's Honours List marked the achievements and service of extraordinary people across the UK. The Cabinet Office says recipients are awarded for their outstanding contributions across all parts of the UK with their areas of work including sustained public service, youth engagement and community work. Coventry's council leader has given his thoughts on some of the major events that hit the headlines in the city over 2023. These include news of high pressure on council budgets, the collapse of the City of Culture Trust, the return of the waste service dispute and losses at Coombe Abbey Hotel. Councillor George Duggins also spoke on positives of the year in council services and the city's football club and hinted at what we can expect to see in 2024. For Councillor Duggins, the highlights of the year were the things the council achieved across its services in spite of pressure on budgets. Reopening St Mary's Guildhall, the groundbreaking Channel 4 programme Kids about children in care in the city, and green flag awards for five city parks are some of these. A total of 70,000 people went to Godiva Festival in the summer. Two-thirds of Coventry's secondary schools improved their GCSE results, and the city's job shop, which has helped thousands into work, had its 10-year anniversary. Councillor Duggins also pointed to the results of the City of Culture Evaluation Report, which found a £150 
150 million pound tourism boost to Coventry and over 180 million pounds invested in the city at least partly due to its winning the title. I think we've had a very good year he said. He hopes this can be repeated in 2024 and spotlighted the very light rail track in the city as one thing he wants to see progressing. We've now got the finance, we believe, to take that forward. That would be quite exciting. But he said the achievements in services came amidst considerable concern about local government funding, as soaring demand and inflation hits councils across England. Some of the things I've outlined have been achieved despite that, he said. The council believes it is underfunded compared to its need, said Councillor Duggins, quoting figures from a 2023 IFS report which found that Coventry had £30 million less per year on average compared to other councils. Cutting local government finance further could also mean services that are taken for granted could simply disappear, he added. Councillor Richard Brown warned this year the council could face effectively declaring bankruptcy next September if it did not get more funding. Plans to cut £11 million across the council's services were revealed earlier this month and, if they go ahead, would save it from considering the move. These tough options include, include parking fee hikes, charging for some bin collections, turning off street lights at night and changes to the Godiva Festival. A new dispute between Unite and the City Council broke out early this year as plans to scrap task and finish from bin workers' contracts were revealed. This condition allows workers in the service to go home after finishing their rounds rather than at the end of the day. Councillor Duggins defended the council's commercialisation programmes, meaning its purchases of companies like Tom White and Coombe Abbey Hotel. This year also saw Coventry City make the playoff finals and almost return to top flight football after more than 20 years. It was great that the football club got to Wembley. That was a real highlight of the year, he said. Let's hope they can do something very similar to that this year, they're not far off it. City bus users received an early Christmas present as National Express Coventry confirmed it will continue the government's £2 single fare cap scheme until the end of 2024. The government scheme was first launched in January and has seen 12.5 million National Express bus passenger journeys made in the West Midlands using the single fare offer. Anybody making three or more journeys a day will be able to use the £4.50 day saver tickets from the new year, the firm has also confirmed. Alex Jensen, CEO for National Express UK, Ireland and Germany, said, Bus is by far the most popular form of public transport here in Coventry and the wider West Midlands. So we are pleased to be working with Transport for West Midlands and the Department for Transport to extend the £2 single ticket until the end of 2024. More people using buses is good for the economy, good for the environment and good for wider society. Millions of savers are watching on 
after Coventry Building Society and the Cooperative Bank entered into talks over a possible merger. Co-op Bank told investors it had begun exclusive discussions with the Coventry-based Building Society in order to evaluate the merits of a combination of the firms. What it will all mean for co-op customers remains to be seen, but the move follows speculation this year over a string of potential bidders for the lender, which has turned around its financial performance and recovered its profits. Potential bidders for the group were thought at one stage to include specialist lenders Shawbrook and Aldermore. The bank is no longer part of the wider cooperative group after parting ways in 2017 when it fell into deep financial difficulty. It is now owned by a group of private equity investors including US-based JC Flowers and Bain Capital Credit who bought a stake in 2021. The bank, which has about 2.5 million retail customers and says it is the UK's leading ethical bank, said last month it was exploring potential strategic opportunities following its recovery and growth over the past three years. A tie-up with Coventry Building Society, headquartered in Harry Weston Road, Binley, could return it to a member ownership structure. The once flailing bank became profitable two years ago and more than quadrupled profits in 2022 under the leadership of Chief Executive Nick Slape, who steered its turnaround. It reported a pre-tax profit of about £80 million for the third quarter of the year, down a fifth compared with the previous year. Co-op Bank, based in Manchester, Mm -hmm. agreed to buy Sainsbury's Bank's mortgage portfolio in August for £464 million, taking on around 3,500 customers. Meanwhile, CBS manages nearly £50 billion worth of mortgages and more than £45 billion in saving balances. Detailed plans for one of the single biggest housing developments in Coventry have been revealed. The major plans for 2,400 new homes at Eastern Green were given the green light back in 2021. Now, the City Council has approved what is known as a Reserved Matters application. This was for specific details about the plans, from appearance to layout, landscaping and scale. It included highway and drainage connections from the different phases of the huge development on land south of the A45, which was removed from the Greenbelt in 2017. The overall master plan for the site is for up to 2,400 dwellings, including extra care accommodation. There will also be a new vehicle access from the A45 and via Pickford Green Lane. 15 hectares of employment land and a district centre with a local centre of approximately 1,000 square metres for shops plus other community facilities. On top of that, there are plans for a new primary school, open spaces, substantial landscaping, green infrastructure and sports provision. Countryside Partnerships submitted the application, which included highways and drainage connections. On December the 14th, the Council approved the application, but with some conditions. 
A campaign has been launched to save a building and landmark synonymous with Christmas in Coventry. Hursle Baptist Church in Chapelfields has been put up for sale amid reported plans to merge its congregation with another in the city. The move doesn't just threaten the future of the building itself, but also its spire and the Hursle star erected there each year. It's a local landmark and it's how people know it's Christmas, said Councillor Jane Innes. Christmas simply wouldn't be the same without the Hursle star. I love it, my kids love it, and everyone in the local area loves it. Mrs Innes and other Wobley councillors hope to protect the building and its striking festive additions by petitioning the City Council to make the church locally listed. Listed building consent is required to demolish, alter or extend locally listed buildings, granted as such because they are seen to have value to the local community. The petition, which amassed close to 500 signatures within 48 hours of going live this week, is calling for the church to remain a community asset. The number of people who have signed it shows how much people really care about it, Councillor Innes said. We want the building to continue being used by the community. It has the scouts there. It's used as a polling station for elections. Knit and chat sessions take place there. It would be terrible to lose it as a community building. It's really well used. It's coming up to 100 years old and it's very distinctive. We want local listing status so that we can protect it for future generations. Speculation about the future of the church has been rife for months, but only in the last few days was a decision reportedly made to place it on the property market. It's claimed the Queensland Avenue plot is being sold by the Baptist Church nationally and that it will be made available at a public auction. Baptist Union Corporation Limited, which supports more than 2,000 Baptist churches as a property trustee, was, however, unable to give a definitive answer. A BUC spokesperson said, Whilst the Baptist Union Corporation Limited are the property trustees and legal owners, the property trust that governs the building names Hursle Baptist Church as the beneficial owner. So it is the church which will make decisions about a possible sale. The BUC's role will be to ensure that the sale is compliant with the property trust and charity law. We believe the church is considering a sale and some interest has been generated. No firm decisions have been made to date. A Coventry head teacher has proved she's in a class of her own after bagging a major teaching award. Safina Islam, who leads Stanton Bridge Primary School in Foleshill, won Head Teacher of the Year at the 2023 Education Today Awards Ceremony in London. The accolade comes after Safina was awarded an OBE for Services to Education in 2014. The same year she received an Education Resources Award during a glitzy event at the NEC. This award should be attributed to every member of staff at the school, Mrs Islam said. They all deserve that award. It shouldn't be Head Teacher of the Year. It should be the Staff and Teachers of the Year. And it's not just this year. It's not a yearly thing.
Safina didn't know she had been entered for a national award until colleagues ordered her to get dressed up for an event in London. Lots of people were nominated, eight were selected, and then they announced the winners on the night. I couldn't believe it when they said my name. It was just so overwhelming. Stanton Bridge was considered one of the worst primary schools in Coventry when Safina joined as head teacher in 2008. Now it's seen as a class leader, partly because of how it has transformed the fortunes of people in one of the city's most deprived areas. We're in a school in a challenging context, Safina added. We have up to 49 different languages in the school high levels of migrant families and high levels of transient families. Part of a Coventry cemetery was sealed off after graves were badly damaged when a huge tree came down in high winds. As many as 15 gravestones at London Road Cemetery in Charlesmore were believed to have been damaged, some smashed to pieces as Storm Pier battered the UK in the run-up to Christmas. The felled trees sent debris across a number of graves and completely blocked a path. The local authorities said its emergency staff on call during the Christmas period would prioritise immediate dangers following the arrival of Storm Gerrit, which has brought gale force winds and torrential rain to large parts of the UK. We can confirm the area is currently cordoned off and the tree will be removed in due course, a spokesperson says. Once this has happened, we can assess the damage caused. Remarkably, no one was injured when the tree came down early on Friday, December the 22nd. Linda Fletcher, vicar of St Catherine's Church in Stoke Aldermore, shared a picture of the devastation on Facebook. I'm shocked by the size of the tree branch that has fallen and am praying for the families whose loved ones' graves are affected, vicar Fletcher had said. They, Coventry City Council, are good at looking after the cemetery, so it's a shame as the tree that was damaged looked healthy. It must just have been a huge gust at just the wrong angle. It's hard to tell how many graves were damaged as it covered quite an area. The path was completely blocked. I imagine the debris was over 15 or so graves. Not all residential routes in Coventry should have reduced 20 mile per hour speed limits in order to improve road safety, a leading city councillor says. One of the standout proposals in the Earlston Liverpool neighbourhood pilot scheme, designed to encourage more people to be active whilst enhancing road safety, is for a 20 mile per hour zone to cover the whole of Earlston village. But Councillor Matty Heaven, who has been involved in the consultation process for the scheme, says a blanket approach to reduce speed limits is not necessarily the way forward. Her warning comes after residents said the 20 mile per hour pilot should be rolled out across the city. I would only support 20 mile per hour where measures are needed, not just make all roads that, the Shadow Cabinet Member for City Services said. Different areas need a different approach. The solution is not just making all roads a 20 mile per hour, because even then people can still speed. We have areas that are 20, but people still speed more than that.
Sometimes putting in vehicle activation signs, cameras and other preventative measures is a way of looking at it. Councillor Heavens said, in her experience, road safety and the condition of footpaths was quite comfortably the biggest area of concern for residents. We should make sure the pavements are safe so that people can walk without fear, she said, especially at this time of the year for the elderly. Every part of the city needs looking at differently. The biggest issues that we get as councillors is road safety. As long as people are driving safely and we have measures to reduce speed, that's the biggest thing. Shoppers have shared their excitement ahead of a hugely anticipated retailer opening in Coventry. B&M will soon be opening on Cathedral Lanes. It comes after Wilco collapsed into administration late last year, with the city centre-based store closing in October. It will now be replaced by EB&M, which is set to open in February. Customers can expect to find a wide variety of branded goods, including a range of food, drink and pet food, at the city centre-based B&M. Plans show that the new store is set to open between 7am and 11pm from Monday to Sunday. Many have shared their excitement about B&M opening on Cathedral Lanes on Facebook, and a spokesman for B&M said, I can confirm that B&M will be opening a new store on Cathedral Lanes Coventry in February 2024. A well-known Coventry man was left stunned with the results of taking his 60-year-old rugby boots to be fixed on BBC One's The Repair Shop. Lee Johnson explained that his late father Ernie had bought his boots when he was just six years old. But one of them was chewed by the family dog Jakey, leaving his wife to say that they should be thrown away. However, Lee, who played for Coventry Rugby Club, was desperate to keep them. He explained that the boots are a lasting reminder of his dad, who passed away last year. During the episode on December the 27th, he told the repair shops Dean Westmoreland and Dominic Ginea why they were so special. They were my first ever boots, he said. I had them when I was about six, so they are more than 60 years old. My dad, Ernie, was a keen sportsman, and he played rugby. He was a role model. I loved watching him play. He explained that they went on to play in the same team when he was 15. He, his father and his uncle were in the first row together. I was lucky enough to captain my hometown, Coventry, he said, and I was lucky to get into the England squad for a few years. The local man said that over the last few years his dad developed dementia. He died last year, and I thought... What can I do to make sure they are a testimony to him? They are part of me and my dad. He knew I loved them and the sport and what he did for me. I would love them to be a pair again. Expert Cobbler Dean set to work to strengthen and condition the boot and get some 60-year-old dirt off them. He used English suede leather to make the repair where the dog chewed one of the boots. Once complete, Mr Johnson was invited back to the famous barn where presenter Jay Blades was with Cobbler Dean. These are more than just rugby boots, said Jay Blades. Lee said, yes, these are me and my dad. 
Eager to see them, he said, "Please blow the whistle and get the game started." A cloth was lifted to show the boots, and as a finishing touch, Dominic made a presentation case for them. As Mr. Johnson left the barn, he said, "They may be small boots, but they're such a story of my life and rugby. They are a symbol of Dad investing his time." And also the time we spent together, they just evoke so many happy memories. Christmas Day was made even more special for families who welcomed little bundles of joy. The University Hospital Coventry in Warwickshire revealed that staff in its maternity department helped to deliver five babies on Christmas Day. The first came especially early, just after midnight. Later, the hospital posted an image of its maternity team on social media and wrote, "So far, our staff have delivered a total of five babies since midnight, with our first baby delivered at 12:13 a.m." Congratulations to all of our parents on this very special day, and a big thank you to all staff working so hard in our hospitals and our communities. People took to Facebook to praise the dedicated staff and fantastic maternity unit at the hospital. Gladys Baskerville said, "Well done to all the staff and congratulations to all the parents." While Jackie Greenwood added, "I had my little boy on Saturday. The labour went amazingly, and the staff were brilliant with my care and caring for my son." Outlook News. Thanks to Peter and Elaine uh, for this week's news. Uh, moving on, um, I have the uh, lighting up times for this week: sunrise 8:15 a.m., sunset 4:06 p.m. So not quite eight hours of daylight, but I think it's getting better slowly. Right. Well, as usual, Hugh is here with the week's resources news. He claims there's nothing happening at the moment, but I don't believe it. Here's Hugh. Well, <laughs> thank you, Pete. Happy New Year, as they said on the Poseidon Adventure before the boat sank. Um, yeah, well, I've been scrabbling around trying to find bits of uh, bits of news and things from the resource centre to cobble around and put together and uh, give you something to, give something to talk about. And actually, I did come up with a few things. Uh, not the least of which is that uh, December was a very good month for us in terms of. Um, uh, fundraising and uh, money presented to the charity um, uh, we have to give a shout out to Dave Monks and Graham who uh, went uh, singing uh, before Christmas and raised I think it's about £150 I haven't got the figures quite to hand uh, Visibly Sound, the music group uh, did the same at Tesco's uh, and raised about £170-£180 which is all great uh, we had a lovely donation of £500 from the Masons uh, which, so thank you very much to them uh, and today, actually, we had a presentation of a cheque for £650 um, from our uh, relatively new volunteer, David Courtney, who helps out uh, on the walking group. Uh, David is a really keen knitter, and he knits the most fabulous things. Uh, and he sold some of these, uh, or quite, obviously quite a lot of them, I should hope, mm, um, at cool. uh, an event uh, in Earlston, 
uh, before Christmas, uh, the, the Christmas markety thing that they were doing. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, £650 for the charity, which is absolutely wonderful. So thank you very much to uh, David wow. and his um, and his friend Cam- uh, uh, Camilla, who uh, who helped him do that. Um, absolutely wonderful. Um, we're very appreciative, of course, of all monies that are raised for us. Um, on a slightly sadder note, but I think you might want to be interested, is that um, the fund um, in uh, memory of Rosie uh, has now gone above £2,700. So um, we thank everybody who's made those donations as well. Um, also, um, money, the family's uh, donated some money <coughs> To Esme's Umbrella, which is a, diff- a, a charity which is specifically for people with um, uh, Charles Bonnet syndrome, uh, which is the visual hallucinations, which um, a number of the people listening uh, uh, will experience. And Esme's Umbrella is a charity dedicated to providing information about the condition and um, helping people to find ways to manage it. Um, another sort of uh, good. M- money news I suppose uh, but it was also to do with the structure of the charity uh, you remember that in June we started with the uh, preventative support grant which is a, uh, uh, an award from the council and the integrated care board that is helping us to expand our services uh, and that's, that f- award has enabled us to take on uh, Chris Norman as our uh, service development uh, manager, officer, and uh, and Kudi uh, as the outreach officer. Uh, well, we were awarded that um, finally in about um, April, which was a bit later than they were expecting. Um, but they've contacted me just before Christmas, uh, nice little Christmas present, to say that they were going to renew it without uh, without us having to do anything more. So uh, they they are uh, very pleased with how we're doing there. So uh, props to uh, Chris and, and Cody and indeed to the whole team here um, because that um, project is really making a big difference to how we uh, uh, operate here at the resource centre. Speaking of Cootie, you know she was off sick for a bit um, before Christmas. Uh, she's back at work now, but not in the office this week, but she will be back in the office from next week. Uh, so we'll be very pleased to see her dolly old eek, as they say in Polare, um, when, uh, when, uh, when she comes back, uh, which is great. We're always looking, it has to be said, for new activities to do here at the Resource Centre. We have space in the calendar of during the week. I mean, we already do, I was counting them up the other day, well over 36 hours of activities per week. Um, and you all know what they are. But if you've got any ideas about stuff that you think that we could do that might interest other people um, with visual impairments, uh, then do please let us know and we will uh, put it up hand it over to Chris and he can sort it out. Um, <laughs> that's his job. Uh, so uh, the idea is that um, we would see if anybody else is interested in it and see if we can arrange it. If we need funding for it, go and get funding, that sort of thing. So uh, ideas that come to us uh, and we will uh, take the next steps and see if we like them and see what happens. So uh, we're always grateful for n- new activity ideas. Um Talking of new things, uh, we ran out of watches pretty much uh, just before Christmas because people were buying them for Christmas presents, which was jolly nice. So we'll have a new batch of watches coming in uh, in the next couple of days or so. So if you need a new talking watch, uh, do please uh, come and have a look and see what we've got on offer. We have a genuinely n- nice range 
um, a price is going from about twenty six, twenty seven pounds up to about uh, forty five or fifty pounds. Um, and also, uh, we'll be getting in a whole bunch of new uh, community players. Um, you'll remember that many of you will be listening to this uh, to the talking newspaper on uh, a Sonic. Um, USB player uh, which were lovely and were made by King's Audio which sadly went into administration um, 18 months or so ago um, a community player is uh, is a product um, that the RNIB provides uh, it's very simple it looks like the community clock so it's a, just a unit you stick your USB in um, you've got a one button pretty much on the top and a volume button and um, that's that's pretty much how how it rolls. Um, it's um, perfectly decent, um, and uh, they come in at about ooh, gosh, uh, about thirty pounds, I think they are, give or take. Don't quote me on that. Come and have a look at what the price ticket is. So if you hmm. decide that you need a new USB player, then we will have some of those in stock very very shortly. Um, then what else? Oh yes, now uh, we are also. Uh, very soon going to have a whole uh, new set of computers in the computer room. Uh, we've had a... Uh, uh, we've been working with the council uh, quite closely and they've got a, a sort of digital inclusion project. So uh, they are providing us with um, seven uh, rather nice, quite um, beefy computers, um, computer boxes um, uh, that uh, will have all the usual... Uh, all the usual stuff on uh, and we are going to be buying they've also given us a bit of a grant and we're going to be buying some very large monitors 29 inch monitors oh, actually I think they're 28 inch ones the ones we've identified um, so those will give you a much bigger screen uh, to uh, to use the computer on which will be helpful for a lot of people so uh, those hopefully will be getting into place within the next month or so so um, uh, if you're a regular user of the uh, computers here at the centre, then uh, that's something to look forward to. Um, if you've always fancied having a go at uh, the computing, do please uh, get in contact with us and we'll book you a place on and uh, we can teach you how to use them. Or, you know, if you want to see what these new computers are like, we can have somebody sit alongside you and, uh, and help you out because we have our superb volunteers, of course, who are available for that. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of advanced warning about a theatre trip, which is coming up in March. So it's a little way off. I'm aiming for the 20th of March, um, and we're going down to the Criterion uh, to see a play. Uh, the 20th of March, by the way, is a Wednesday. The play that we're going to go and see is called Dirty Great Love Story. Uh, and... I actually do not. I I only know that um, written by somebody called Richard and Karen. Actually, I I've forgotten what their surnames are. Anyway, it's a wry, funny, sweet-natured variation on the archetypal boy meets girl story. Nice nerdy Richard and lately dumped Katie meet when a stag night and hen party collide and end up having a drunken one-night stand. Mm. Oh, I know, shocking, isn't it? <laughs> Cover your ears. Uh, over the following months, they acquire new partners, and when their respective best friends get hitched fleetingly meet at a wedding, a christening, and a muddy pop festival. Uh, 
Wittily written, at times in rhyme, uh, The Pleasure of the Police uh, Peace Lies in the Language. It premiered in August 2012 as part of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Oh, here we are, I've got their names now. Richard Marsh and Katie Bonner's verse rom-com is a very sweet, wry, sweet-natured account of a totally believable relationship, said Michael Billington in The Guardian, and it'll have you crying with laughter and melting inside because of its cuteness, said uh, Francesca Charlemagne from Everything Theatre. So that's something to look forward to. Um, the tickets uh, will be £12.50 as usual. Um, bus extra, fish and chips extra, um, but we will, uh, if you... You can shade out that day in your diary, Wednesday the 20th of March, uh, and we'll come back with details perhaps a, a little bit more close to the time. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, should be should be a fun night. And it's very appropriate for spring, because in spring, a young man's fancy. Yeah, it turns to that. It certainly does. <laughs> yes. Um, is that the end of the quote? I can't I can never remember. No. Anyway, a young man's fancy turns to something or anywhere. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, there we are. Something to, to keep us all going. Thank you very much, Something Hugh. to look forward to, because... Oh, it's miserable out there. Yeah, and it's there. leap year, so you've got an extra day to get oh, through. Oh, an extra, yes, an extra, an extra <laughs> day of bleeding right, winter. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much, Hugh. Uh, it does sound like 2024's shaping up pretty well, actually. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to it, actually. We've got a lot of, a lot of things coming things up, I hope. Things yeah. going on. Good. OK, uh, well, all that remains to us now is, is sport, really. And uh, Sarah often records her weekly contribution. But today, she's here in person. Here is Sarah with the sport. Outlook Sport Well hello there listeners Yes it's me again with sport But with a slight difference this week Because I'm actually in the studio Because as usual at this time I've put together my What Happened at Christmas quiz Now I'm covering all the local issues and the national issues that I cover every week so none of these should come as a total guess <laughs> but guess what I've got a right rough looking crowd in the studio who yeah. are going to chip hello, in with hello, their <laughs> yeah I know Elaine well I did give you warning that doesn't help <laughs> right question one over Christmas or the Christmas period the mighty sky blues played four matches mm -hmm. now given that there's no points for a loss one for a draw and three for a win how many points have Coventry ended up with is it two eight or ten? Oh, my maths was never a good subject but oh, it was a very positive time for sports so I'll go with Ten. Yes, it was ten, and apparently that is the highest number in our league. I think it's only Southampton who are on a par with us, and there's only two teams in the whole of the EFL and the Premier who have got the full house. And for a bonus point, Ooh. and we like our bonus points, where currently are Coventry in the championship table? Eight. Yes. Mm. Oh, she's far too. Oh, oh, oh. And I can see our Peter as well sitting there going, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, do chip in, sir. <laughs> now, as you know, I also cover the Southern Premier Midlands. 
League, where we have three of our local teams, and over Christmas there were two derby matches. On Boxing Day, Stratford played Leamington, and on New Year's Day, Leamington played Nuneaton. Now, the result for Leamington was the same in both, although the score was different. So, did Leamington pick up two wins, two draws, or two losses? Any guesses? It's doing quite well at the moment. I would say two wins. Two draws. And that Elaine woman gets it right oh. again. <laughs> it was 2-2 against Stratford. At one stage, Stratford were 2-0 up until the 80th minute. And then Leamington scored once, and then they scored again with a, with a penalty. Cheeky. In extra time, mm. or whatever they call yeah, it now. Yeah, and cheeky. it was 1-1 against Nuneaton. Mm. But yep, they are doing quite well at the moment. I haven't checked the table recently, but I will check it for you for next week. Coventry Rugby Club, meanwhile, celebrated their 150th anniversary with... Well, they decided it would be the match on Boxing Day, although I understand it. It wasn't precise, but it was as near as damn it, but it was flaming cold, according to my friend who (laughs) went... And they ran out winners 37 points to 21. Cov are doing very well, actually, at the moment. And for a while they were top. But they have played two more matches than the others. Um, Where are they playing? Nuneaton, Nottingham or Northampton? Northampton? Nottingham. Yes. (laughs) I was there. Oh, so you know how cold it was. Yeah, I thought you were going to ask how many spectators were there. Well, that was my bonus question. Right, okay, I can do that too. Okay, (laughs) please tell. 5,047. Yep. Mm. Record crowd of the bus. Yeah, I should think that was a, a nice way of almost keeping a little bit warm mm. with the snugness. Because yeah, Butts Park, listeners, is not very big. It's only got the one stand, hasn't it, or the one covered stand. It has, yes. Um, with, with the railway at the back and the uneaten flyer, as we call it, coming yeah. over the railway. <laughs> yeah, when I used to go to the matches, I used to sit there and think, oh, this is like Camblewick Green, you know, <laughs> with the little train chugging. Yeah. Yeah. They have got plans. Oh, I know they have big plans. Uh, yeah. yeah. Not happened yet. Yeah. Question four. Now, you know I frequently cover tennis. So, two-part two question here. First part, which male former Grand Slam champion has just made a return to the professional circuit? And he's playing in Australia with a bid to get in to the Australian Open, having currently fallen out of the top 600. Can't hear you. Nadal has been playing recently, but I don't know if that's him. I didn't realise he'd fallen that far. Yes, Rafa Nadal. I knew he just started playing again. Yeah, well, I think it's because he hasn't played, I don't think, at all for about a year. So You fall quickly then, don't you? You do. Top five to out of the 600. Yeah, absolutely. But I I had to sort of laugh last night on BBC 
sports roundup when they said, well, he's got over his hip problem, so he's just got the sort of long-term knee problem and foot problem now. Mm. And mm. it's like, Rafa, why do it? Because mm. he enjoys it. I know. He says. I know. Mm. Yeah. And he's a great asset as well for tennis. Mm. And second part of the question... Also returning to play, you can tell how enthusiastic I am, so that probably gives the answer away here, is a female player who has won just one major. Who is that? Emma Raducanu. Yeah. She's 300 and something, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, she's fallen down to there, yeah. yeah. But all being well, well, if, you, if you're a fan of Emma's, which as <sighs> listeners know I'm not... Um, she will get into Australia if one more, without playing in the qualifiers, yes. if one more person falls ill or has to withdraw for some yes. reason. Yeah, yeah. But I'm afraid we've heard this before with Emma, and it hasn't got anywhere. Absolutely. This time, maybe. Maybe, but today in the qualifier... Well, the sort of lower grade tournament, she's playing the number two seed. Ah. So. (laughs) Right, okay. Yep. Now, I have widely covered Spotty recently, Sports Personality of the Year. Who won the Helen Rollison Award for striving against adversity? Any guesses? Male or female? Female. But they'd only give one category. Ah. Fatima Whitbread. It was for all the work she's done, because I didn't know this, but she was in care for about Mm. 14 years. Mm. And she's done a lot of work Mm. to promote better lives for children who are in care Mm. and she said she she gave a very long speech but you know she was saying how she was never picked until somebody who was coaching her at javelin suddenly found out that she was in care and basically Mm. took care of her took Mm. care of her Mm. yeah i mean sort of five of the other awards and there are only eight awards in total went to football Mm. Mm. With the overall one going, of course, to Mary Earps, mm. as I predicted. Yes. The team award going to Manchester City. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a United girl if I have to pick those two, but I prefer Bournemouth at the moment. Um, their manager, Pep Guardiola, winning coach of the year. Well, you've got to spread these awards around. (laughs) And Kenny Dalgleish winning the Lifetime Achievement Mm. Mm. Award. (laughs) I have to say, when they announced in advance that he was getting it, I asked my speaker, A-L-E-X-A, don't want to set all the listeners' speakers off when Kenny Dalgleish dies. (laughs) 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 And she says, he's still alive. Or words to that effect. <laughs> um, and finally, 
Now you know that there's a very small event that I'm getting rather excited about that begins on July, I think it's the 27th this year, the Paris Olympics. Which new sport is be or sports are being included for the first time? Now I've got a bit of an issue with this. Is it a racket sport? No. No. There's one that isn't really a sport, isn't there? Yes. And I can't think for life of me what it is, because I probably am not interested in it because it's not a sport. Yes. Is it a table sport? No. Nope. <sighs> it's something like line dancing or break, break dancing. Dance. Break dancing. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was reading <coughs> the IOC, the Im- uh, International Olympic Committee's statement on the new sports, and they sport. said also, they said break dancing, climbing, surfing and skateboarding but I know that three of those have been in it before, so whether they were just in as exhibition mm. events and they are now fully integrated. Climbing's astonishing to watch, isn't it? It is, it's and I have no speed. issue with that being a sport. But the break dancing. Break dancing, no. Break it's dancing, not, no, no, no. like, it's not oh, we'll have Strictly come the Olympics next. <laughs> and at that point, can I wish all the listeners who are still with me a very good 2024 and that has been your sports roundup thank you very much sarah having had a couple of weeks break i'm hoping that's given you the opportunity to write to postbag so let's find out from dave this is postbag join in the discussion Hello there and welcome to the first postbag of 2024 and a very happy new year to you. Tell us how you spent Christmas and your hopes for the new year and please try your best to send a message into postbag in 2024. Keeping in touch with people is so important. In my case, since losing my lovely wife Sheila last February, I try to keep in touch with people and talking to you and hearing from you is very important to me and there are some listeners for whom an outing is the next hospital appointment you can reach out to them with a simple greeting Edwina who despite being deafblind is determined to keep her lines of communication open by talking to you and passing on helpful tips She starts off 2024 with her greeting for you. Hi everybody. I hope you've had a lovely Christmas. It soon passes, but I'm sending you warmest wishes for a very happy new year. A new year is a new beginning. So forget anything in the past. It wasn't quite what you thought it would be. You are stepping on a new path into a new year. Be happy. Keep well. Love, Edwina. Another listener who's very inspiring and also dedicated to communicating with you is Julia. She wants to apologise to you for not hearing very well, which it isn't necessary for you to do. Here she is with a report entitled, Hear, Hear, Hear. 
I want to apologize to all my friends, especially if I didn't hear them properly. You see, I've been having problems with my hearing, so it can be difficult to hear everything that's going on. So sorry if she said, Hello, Julia, here's 20 quid, and I ignored you. I probably didn't hear you. You can still send me the money via that nice Mr. Monks. <laughs> A nice lady called Sarah from the talking newspaper talked to us about sports. I think she said she was a premature baby, but she seemed quite grown up to me. Perhaps I misheard. The next week, Simon came to sing to us. He sang, Take me home and make your mind up. So that was nice. Then a week later, Julie and the guitar sang, Always look on the the bright side of life. They all sang a lot more, but I didn't hear. My hearing's better now, so that's a good thing. One good thing about not being able to hear was that I couldn't hear my friend John complaining so much. That's all he ever does. Things like, uh, give me some sherbet lemons, he says, and just goes on and on and on. But I'm all better now. Lots of love, Julia. Thank you, Julia, and for all your great pieces. I'm sorry you weren't able to hear Sarah's inspiring talk. She had a kidney transplant. She was told she would put on weight afterwards as a result, but she was determined for this not to happen. So she took part in the transplant games and numerous marathons. Well, Sarah is small and she doesn't weigh very much at all, so it's obviously worked and she's a very inspiring person too. Now, here's a message for another postbag stalwart, Graham Whale, who sent in a message into my very first postbag about 40 years ago, encouraging the sports team to keep faith with the sky blues when their hopes were flagging. And here's a message from your friend Ian Harris Graham that I know from the bands in the park, the Nostalgic Singing Club and the Solo Dance Club for Widow, Divorce, Separated and Single People. Here's Ian. Hello Graham, it's Ian, a good friend of yours for many years. I've known you um, since the days of Coffee Pot and of course you went to the police ballroom, I remember very well. And uh, of course I've met you in the, in the city centre and helped you cross the road on occasions. And um, I phoned you of course, I was on a few occasions and um, I'm hoping you're in, in good health. Before Christmas Ian asked me if anywhere does braille Christmas cards as he would like to send one to Graham. I offered to braille one for him but when I sat down in the tea room at the resource centre with a Perkins brailler I realised I was pretty rusty at braille it was taking me a long time so I asked Philip King who hadn't used a Perkins brailler for 25 years but he rattled one off for Ian uh, and some for me for Graham, Julie 
Julia and Richard Bignall, so thank you for your help, Philip. It was really great. And before Christmas, myself and our two sons, Paul and Graham, went to Wigan, where in a railway-themed cafe, we were entertained by singer-songwriter Les Glover, who has this greeting for you. I'm at Wigan Central Bar in Wigan, would you believe? And this is Les Glover wishing all the listeners a lovely Christmas and a happy new year. All the best to you all. Thank you. Les Glover wrote a song that I sang at our golden wedding party and Graham's 50th party with the composer. So here I am to sing it with Graham on keyboard. Gamble with love. Come and lay down your bets On how long she will last with me I'm not easy to live with Am I easy to love? You can keep all your money All yours and your certainty I'll stick with my queen I won't twist or gamble with love One message was sent to me via email to davidmonks at hotmail.com from John of the Resource Centre, the Computer Tutor, and it's a Christmas poem from Julia. A Christmas poem. A chubby little snowman had a carrot nose. Along came a bunny, and what do you suppose? That hungry little bunny was looking for some lunch. He grabbed the snowman's nose, nibble, crunch, crunch, crunch. Then along came my friend Jen with a glimmer in her eye. She caught that silly bunny and made a rabbit pie. We had the pie for dinner with custard and brown sauce. I said, you can't have sauce with custard. But my friend John said, I can if I want to. Of course, of course, of course. Happy Christmas, everybody, with love from Julia and her friends, John and Jen, Wendy the Warden, Torch Fellowship and David and Mark and Monday Club friends and Edwina and Sarah and Heather and especially to Christ the King because it's his birthday too. Isn't it funny that he has his birthday on Christmas Day, Julia? Thank you, Julia, again. I was once told a joke about a snowman by Ken Dodd after I'd driven to interview him on the worst day of the year through snow and ice. Here was the late, great comic himself, Ken Dodd. I thank the Lord that I've been blessed with more than my share of happiness. I'm Ken Dodd, and I'm sending greetings, warmest wishes to all the listeners to Outlook magazine. By Jove, young man, <coughs> you're like a little snowman. Two snowmen, you see. Two snowmen, went, two snowmen were standing out in the garden, in the snow, in, in Leamington. Now, one, said, one snowman said to the other snowman, he said, can you smell carrots? And the tickling stick that Ken Dodd gave me for going out to interview him on a night like that is still in service with the dusting. The other tickling stick given by Ken Dodd was won in a competition set by him by the late, much-missed listener, Farmer Mike Haig, for being able to name the Diddy Men. 
Finally, I had a lovely conversation on our house phone on 024-76-598484 with Doreen Hilton, who has this New Year greeting for you. Hello, everybody. everybody. Um, here's Doreen Hilton speaking again. Um, as we know now, we're coming up to the New Year, 2024, and let's hope it brings us a good one this year. Um, and all we do really want is um, good health, good spirits, um, love and happiness. And I hope we get it all. But I do wish everybody a lovely, um, happy new year. Sometimes we can say happy and sometimes we can't. We have to put something else in place of it. But I do wish all our staff, in the resource centre, they work so hard, very hard, we're very lucky, we've got the centre, and I hope that we have a few more people to come and keep it going, because it will be lovely for everybody. Anyway, all, I wish you all the very best, keep well, like I said, and keep your spirit up, that's what we need for our new year, and keep happy. Thank you, Doreen, and for your messages this week. And I know Doreen wants to keep Postbag going and tries to help by sending in messages. And I hope you will really try in the new year to communicate with us and your fellow listeners. It's really important. Uh, Being able to communicate is a wonderful thing to do. It really is. Uh, I mean, uh, after Sheila died and after then Graham was in hospital straight afterwards, it it really sort of uh, caused me to my speech to get worse. And uh, Graham phoned me up one day and says, uh, go along to the singing group. It'll help your speech. And it certainly did. Right, thanks for the way that my two sons have been a tremendous help, you know. Okay, well, thank you very much uh, for your messages this week, and please let's hear from you soon. Okay, thank you very much. Tell us all about yourself and what you like doing in life, and maybe the things help that helps you around the house, and there's uh, things that have happened in the news you've uh, heard on the talking newspaper. So there must be lots of things to talk about. Tell us where you're going for your holiday. Okay, well, that's about all for me right now. So uh, thanks a lot. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Let us know about your New Year resolutions in Postbag for next week. Here in Britain, we've the traditional ways of celebrating New Year. Firework displays, old Lang Syne, and in Scotland, Hogmanay and First Footing. But other parts of the world have very different ways of welcoming the New Year. Nigel tells us about some of the weird and wonderful customs elsewhere. Time flies by so fast, doesn't it? It's quite remarkable how quickly the world has changed in just a few short years, in such unexpected ways. Would anyone have believed a decade ago we would all soon be forced to stay inside due to a global pandemic? 
Would people in 2004, having seen an 18-year-old Wayne Rooney tear Europe apart, have believed that England still would not have lifted any major trophies by 2024? And would someone in 1984 getting a bad back from lugging their brick phones around have believed within 40 years people would use their pocket-sized mobiles to watch videos? So let's go back, back a bit. 2014. The biggest talking point in 2014 was the Scottish independence referendum, where Scotland decided to remain part of the United Kingdom. The year started with Farrell Williams' catchy, if somewhat annoying, toe-tapper, Happy, topping the charts. Other huge records to come out in 2014 include Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars' infectious Uptown Funk, and the first of their Sheeran's plethora of winning classics, Thinking Out Loud. In sports, Germany won the 2014 FIFA World Cup in a tournament which saw Luis Suarez tear England apart before finding the urge to buy Giorgio Cinelli too great. This was also the year the superhero genre really started to dominate the box office with smash hits like Guardians of the Galaxy, X-Men, Days of Future Past and Captain America, The Winter Soldier. Going back further to 2004, the year started with an out-of-this-world news. The Mars rover had arrived at its destination while in another huge technological advancement, Facebook was launched. The summer was dominated by some 18-year-old lad called Wayne Rooney, notching four goals at Euro 2004 before injury struck against host Portugal, which broke England's hearts in the quarter-final. It was a fabulous year for films with classic flicks such as Spider-Man 2, Shrek 2 and The Incredibles. This year also uh, first introduced people to the cha-cha slide, while other number ones included Usher's Nightbreak Classic Year and Britney Spears' Toxic. And 2004 saw the first ever series of The X Factor, which was won by Steve Brookstein. Do you remember him? Going back further to 1994, May saw the Channel Tunnel officially open, linking Britain with France. This was also the year German supermarket chain Lidl opened its first 10 British stores, while the first national lottery draw was held in November, giving British people the hope of becoming millionaires. It was a golden year for comedy, as the first episodes of The Vicar of Dibley and Friends aired. On the big screen, cinema girls were treated to masterpieces, including Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, The Lion Kring, and Forrest Gump. And Wet 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 dominated the UK charts with Love is All Around, spending an incredible 15 weeks at number one. And going back still further to 1984, this was the year of the miners' strike, sparked by the National Coal Board's plan to close 20 collieries, which had put around 20,000 people out of work. The first ever Apple Macintosh computer went on sale in January, which cost around £3,500 for the day's tech whiz to buy. Cinema screens were flooded with cult classics in 1984, such as Footloose, Ghostbusters, The Karate Kid, The Terminator and Gremlins. George Michael and Wham! dominated the charge with Careless Whisper, Freedom and Wake Me Up Before You Go all shooting to number one. 
but comfortably the biggest song of the year came via Band-Aid, a collection of the world's biggest artists who all collaborated to record Do They Know It's Christmas to raise money for famine relief in Ethiopia. Some very different traditions there. It was impossible not to be moved when rugby legend Kevin Sinfield carried former teammate Rob Burrows across the marathon finishing line towards the end of last year, as written by Jane Warren and read by Keith. It was impossible not to be deeply moved when rugby legend Kevin Sinfield carried former teammate Rob Burrow across a marathon finishing line earlier this year. Now, as the pair discussed the strength of their bond, they urge other blokes to share their feelings. It was a moment of tenderness between two men that encapsulated a bond of friendship honed in the most macho of sporting environments, and one that has endured through a devastating diagnosis. When England rugby coach Kevin Sinfield, OBE, carried his former teammate Rob Burrow, MBE, over the finishing line of the inaugural Rob Burrow Leeds Marathon in May, the gesture revealed the strength of feeling between two extraordinary sportsmen. Rob is my inspiration for the way he's fought for the last four years, says Kevin, of Rob's heartbreaking diagnosis of motor neurone disease at the age of 37. This illness has ravaged some beautiful people and it's tragic what has happened to Rob but he has shown everyone what living is and how to make the best of difficult circumstances. Kevin, 43, was Rob's captain for 12 years, and together they were responsible for the most successful period in the history of the rugby league team, Leeds Rhinos, playing in seven Super League championships and two Challenge Cup successes. Now they've written a touching children's book together about the power of friendship, of which more follows. Their bond has grown ever deeper since father of three, Rob, now 41, received his diagnosis in December 2019 and was given two years to live. It came just two years after the England International ended his celebrated career on a high, with an astonishing eight grand final wins under his belt. But Rob hasn't let his terminal illness define him. Exuding his characteristic positivity, he wanted to be part of his inaugural marathon, asking Kevin to push his wheelchair as he ran the full 26.2 miles in an event that raised £4 million towards a new MND centre in Leeds. The men had planned to end the race arm in arm, but had underestimated how tired Rob would be. They'd had to stop a number of times on the route because he was uncomfortable. Overcome with emotion near the end, Kevin lifted his old friend from his wheelchair, gave Rob a kiss and carried him over the line so that they could finish the race together. Rugby is seen as a very macho sport, but through those years and the tough times on and off the pitch, we forged a friendship that will last a lifetime, says Kevin, who has taken on a series of ultra-tough challenges to raise money for MND since Rob's diagnosis. Just because we've stopped crossing the white line, the connection doesn't end. In stature, he's almost like a little brother. He's only five foot four inches, and he's a couple of years younger than me. This means that today I feel almost like a protective older brother towards him. 
When many older fans of Leeds Rhinos first saw Rob make his debut, they thought he was too small to make an impact, but soon recognised that the man known as the Pocket Rocket was going to be a huge asset to the team, as did his future captain. Rob was always as tough as anything out there on the pitch in a land of giants, says Kevin. He was one of those who can deliver on the big stage with an unbelievable turn of pace. His super skill was in being able to change directions very quickly so the big men couldn't get hold of him. And now this very modern tale of male friendship has spawned a moving children's book, With You Every Step, which will also help raise funds towards the MND Association and Leeds Hospital's charity. We wanted to showcase how we feel about each other, explains Kevin, of the illustrated work filled with touching aphorisms about friendship that resonate with both men and which have been inspired by interviews given by them in recent years. I don't think there should be a stigma about caring for your friends. If we can encourage men and women too to share their feelings, that's really important. Both Rob and I have children, but we've tried to pass on to our boys how important it is to show your feelings and how you feel. Kevin, who in 2012 was named as the world's best rugby league player, lives in Oldham with his wife, Jane. They have two sons, the eldest of whom, Jack, 20, made his debut with Leeds Rhinos last year. Rob has two young daughters and a son with wife, Lindsay. He communicates using iGaze software, enabling enabling him to build up sentences by looking at the letters on a screen his eyes being the only part of his body now under conscious control. It takes a while to build up sentences, but the results reveal his active mind is unchanged, despite a cruel illness which has left this top-flight athlete unable to carry out even basic physical tasks for himself. From the family home in Pontefract, West Yorkshire, Rob uses the software in advance to tell the Daily Express... I wanted to do this book with Kevin to highlight the importance of friendship and show that there are many ways to be strong. I'm hoping the book will appeal to young boys in particular to show that friendships can be based on love and vulnerability. I used to love reading stories to my three young children and I hope that this book will give them an insight into what true friendship is about. Kev was my captain and he still is my captain. He always will be. He always looked after us. He's now still looking after us all. He always has a cheeky message for me when I see him. You will see him say a few words in my ear, and those words are normally funny or not repeatable. Keith will complete the story of that amazing close friendship next week. We haven't heard of Susie Dent's origin of words and phrases recently, so here's Margaret with some more of Susie's musings. Not a sausage. Have you heard from him? Not a sausage. This very British retort is recorded from at least the 1930s. But how does an expression meaning nothing at all involve sausages in the first place? The answer may lie in a piece of rhyming slang in which sausage is short for Sausage and mash, cash. So not having a sausage would mean not having any money. 
Over time, the expression has broadened in its meaning to include a lack of other things. A similar formulation is not a dicky bird, again meaning nothing. As a playful name for a small bird, dicky bird dates from the 18th century, as seen in the nursery rhyme, Two Little Dicky Birds. By the 1930s, it had become the rhyming slang for word. She hasn't said a dicky bird. Gone for a Burton. If someone or something has gone for a Burton, it has either ceased to function or is ruined. This British phrase is first recorded in the 1940s, where it features primarily in military contexts, particularly in the RAF, and it's clear that it meant to crash and be killed. There have been many suggested explanations. One involves Montague Burton, the famous tailor who produced made-to-measure suits. Here, the phrase would be a darkly humorous reference to the wooden suit or coffin needed by a fallen aviator. But the most plausible explanation is that the Burton is Burton's Ale, named from its location of manufacture, Burton-upon-Trent. If a plane had crashed into the sea, then the expression might be, be suggesting that the crew had gone for a Burton's Ale, i.e. into the drink. Flench. Dictionaries of the Scot language offer a feast of words that, though now almost obsolete, seem useful to modern life. Many relate to the weather. The Scots have more words for snow than the Inuit, and wet and windy weather also features large. Flench belongs to the category that is neither one thing nor another, neither dry nor dry. It is defined in the dictionary as a description of weather that gives a deceitful promise or Im of improvement. In other words, these are skies that seem to promise good things, but which ultimately come to nothing. The word seems to be a relative of the French flanche, meaning to back down or chicken out. By extension, anything that is flinched never quite lives up to its promise. A bibliophobia. There are logophiles and there are bibliophiles. Many of us are both. The first are word lovers, while the second are lovers of books. But an appreciation of books comes in numerous forms. A librocubicularist is one who loves to read in bed. While Douglas Adams and John Lloyd in The Deeper Meaning of Lyph, suggested Ballycumber for someone who reads multiple books in one go. A biblioclept is someone who borrows a book, or several, and never returns it. The Japanese Tsundoku is for anyone who has accumulated a mountain of books that stays unread, as opposed to Bibliobuli, those who simply read too much. For them, a bibliophobia is a lifelong condition for this neatly invented word describes the fear or panic of being bookless.
Occasionally, we hear of someone who upsticks from their comfortable home life and does something entirely different. Vet Jonathan Hollins is one such man who swapped his creature comforts in the UK for life on one of the most remote islands. Cat Hops wrote this fascinating story, read by Bill. When medic Jonathan Hollins arrived on a remote South Atlantic island, he discovered, to his horror, his celebrity patient was dying. Old age, dwindling eyesight, and a poor diet left him weak and near to starving. This was no ordinary VIP, though. Hollins' patient was an ancient Seychelles tortoise, also called Jonathan, who was just five when Queen Victoria ascended the throne, and 120 when the late Queen Elizabeth II became monarch. Now, aged 192, he is believed to be the world's oldest living land animal. Yet, when 52-year-old Hollins arrived at St Helena in 2009, a slow-moving reptile was apparently on his last legs. His beak was soft and crumbly, he had cataracts, and existed on a diet of dirt, dry leaves and grass. After observing him for hours in the verdant gardens of Plantation House, a grand 18th century residence that is home to the island's governor and his wife, Hollins realised Jonathan was dying of starvation. Now 65 and newly retired, Hollins has written an entertaining memoir about his time as the first permanent vet based on St Helena, 1,200 miles off Africa's west coast, 5,000 miles from Britain. The world's second most remote inhabited island is where Napoleon was exiled after losing the Battle of Waterloo. And it's fair to say Jonathan, born just 11 years after Bonaparte's demise, remains alive today thanks to Holland's intervention. Giant tortoises are almost considered quasi-immortal, that they tend not to die through severe metabolic disease or cancers, as we do, they wear out, and Jonathan was a classic example, he explains. The consequences were grave. Jonathan is an island icon, a worldwide symbol of longevity, marked by Guinness World Records. When his death does eventually happen, a meticulously planned Operation Go Slow Protocol, complete with an obituary and details of how to preserve the 28 stone tortoise's shell, will be enacted to honour his VIP status. Though it's not hard to imagine what a blow the death of this important biological specimen, also the island's most important tourist attraction, would have been. Every Sunday Hollins visited Plantation House, and hand-fed the tortoise carrots, apples, cabbage and cucumber, with his friend's dog Che in tow. His beak regrew and became super sharp again, and he became more active and put on weight, says Hollins. What he was missing was vitamins, minerals and trace elements, vital ingredients for metabolism. Jonathan's miraculous re- Rival is one of several of Hollins's heroics 
which he recounts in his new book, Vet at the End of the Earth, a memoir of his veterinary adventures in British overseas territories, including the Falkland Islands and Tristan da Cunha. Collins writes with wit about relocating herds of reindeer, attacking a chicken-killing parasite, rescuing a missing dog from a cliff edge. And he's equally warm and funny in person when we meet on a sunny afternoon, just weeks after his retirement from St Helena. Sporting a bronzed complexion from years spent outdoors, Collins has an untamed spirit, one unlikely to disappear as he plans on returning to St Helena each year to live as a semi-permanent resident. He was born in London at the University College Hospital, where his mother worked as a theatre sister. His father was an engineer who worked behind the Iron Curtain a lot in the 1950s and 60s. Collins was raised in Surrey with his brother, surrounded by chickens, rabbits, geese, dogs and cats, and planned to become a vet until his school career advisor talked him out of it. While studying economics at Cambridge University, he was urged by his rowing teammates, some of whom were veterinary science students, to switch courses and follow his passion. Early on in his career, he worked as a vet in South Africa, and joined the Zimbabwean archaeological expedition as a medical officer. His experiences abroad shaped him immeasurably. Travel genuinely broadens your mind, makes you less parochial, therefore more tolerant of race, colour, creed, religion and gender, he explains. Despite his wanderlust, he spent two decades working in the south of England, beginning with three years at what was then the only vet practice in Wellingborough, Northamptonshire. He had an abattoir, which was not my favourite word, it was very good money, he says. And next week, Jonathan finds himself battling a 191-year-old celebrity as Bill completes this story. Last year was the 400th anniversary of the publication of Shakespeare's first folio, a collection of over 30 of the Bard's famous plays, seven years after his death. Nigel tells us more of the extraordinary publication. Shakespeare's first folio is back in safe storage after making an exhibition of itself in Stratford. As part of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust folio at 400 celebrations, the great variety of readers' exhibition at New Place attracted thousands of visitors from around the world. The centrepiece of the exhibition was the so-called Ashburnham First Folio, an original copy of the first printed edition of Shakespeare's collected plays acquired by the SBT in the 19th century. It remains one of the most important items in SBT's world-class collection related to the Bard. It's believed approximately 750 copies of the first folio were published in 1623, seven years after the death of William Shakespeare, and today there are 235 copies that have survived across the world, with three of them in the care of the SBT. 
Since March last year, one of these copies, known as the Ashburnham First Folio, has been on display in exhibition, which closed earlier last month. Now the centuries-old book has returned to the SBT's collection storage for a period of five years. SBT curator Emily White said, Books, even modern ones, are one of the most difficult types of objects to care for, as they are predominantly made of organic materials. These organic materials are highly susceptible to damage caused by certain environmental conditions. Because of this, it was important that we return the first folio to our collection store, where we can conserve and protect the 400-year-old book from damage. Our collection stores are environmentally controlled to ensure they provide the best possible environment for not only the first folio, but for over one million objects in our care. To cancel out the exposure to light and agents of deterioration, the first folio will be rested for five years. This simply means that this special book will remain in our store for a certain period away from light and physical handling or display. With these measures, we hope to be able to share the first folio with our visitors in 400 years to come. The continued conservation of the first folios under the care of SBT is of the utmost importance to ensure future generations have access to one of the world's most important books. This also includes the digitisation of the folio under the care of the charity to ensure people have access to the book whenever they are and wherever they are in the world. To date, 106 pages of the Ashburnham First Folio have been digitised and made available on the SBT's collection database, providing people with a close-up view of the First Folio. From a 17th century masterpiece, we now turn to early 20th century reminiscences and the hurdy-gurdy days with Alan. To get to Grand's house, we went up Earl Street, past the Palace Yard, full of medieval buildings, Cross the road to Hay Lane, along Cuckoo Lane into Priory Row, and then down Hilltop. After we had all had a cup of tea, it was time to go home, and we went back a different way, because Ma'am liked to get something tasty for our dad's tea. We went up new buildings, past the ragged school into Ironmonger Row, past the rag and bone men taking their wares down Palmer Lane, which went off Ironmonger Row and crossed Cheeping. We went up Butcher Row, which had quaint antique shops, second-hand bookshops, wardrobe dealers, etc., with their goods displayed on the pavement outside the shops. The buildings were half-timbered, with the top half jutting out over the lower half. The windows upstairs were latticed, and the street was narrow and cobbled. Halfway down was a shop, where they sold pigs' trotters and peas, at fourpence for the trotters, and two pence for a saucer of peas. On the corner was a fishmonger's shop, where a man would shout out, selling his fish, getting pieces of place, cod, etc., out of a bucket of cold water, slapping them onto a marble slab at the front of the shop. He used to wear a straw brimmer and a navy and white straight apron. Winter or summer he was there, swilling down the slabs with cold water, after all the fish had been sold. Then Ma'am bought a small piece of cod for three pence for our dad's tea. We then turned into Trinity Churchyard. We'd have liked to go into Broadgate, where the tram terminus was, so that we could watch the driver get out of the tram 
and fixed the trolley bowl onto the wires overhead, making a spark before starting off in the direction of Smithford Street, which was a narrow street with double lines. But Ma'am said, No, we will be late for Dad's tea. We went through Pepper Lane, where the tops of the tiny houses nearly touched each other across the narrow street. Parallel with Pepper Lane was a funny little lane called Derby Lane, with one or two tiny little houses. At the end of Pepper Lane, on the corner, was the Golden Cross public house, which was five hundred years old. This time we were straight on down Bailey Lane, past St. Michael's Church and St. Mary's Hall, and the police station into St. Mary Street. On the corner of this street was a large draper's shop, which had two windows in Earl Street and two in St. Mary Street, with an entrance in each street. We rarely went into this shop, because it was rather select, and we couldn't afford their prices. Sometimes man wanted a yard of ribbon or lace, so we ventured in, with her, but never on our own. I can see the inside of that shop now. There was a counter on each side, with a lady assistant standing there waiting to serve. There was a row of chairs in front of each counter for customers to sit in, after they had asked for whatever they wished to purchase. As soon as a customer entered the shop, the shop walker would come forward and, bowing politely, ask what was required. He would then direct them to the appropriate counter. He usually wore a white bow tie, swallowtail coat, and striped trousers. Should the goods required not be in stock, the assistant was obliged to signal the shop walker. He would be waiting to be called to the counter to sign and check the amount charged for the goods purchased. When the assistant explained to him the difficulty in satisfying the customer, he would try to persuade them to purchase something else. It was a terrible job to get out of the shop without making a purchase. The assistant was regarded as most incompetent by the management if this had happened. We were now almost home, and only to cross the road and turn into Much Park Street. We would usually run on in front of Ma'am to lay the table for tea, so as to get out quickly and to play in the brewery yard before it got dark. But before doing this, Ma'am would shout us to get off our good clothes before we went out to play. From time to time, Dave reports on the Godiva Sisters, and here he is now with a review of the Sisters 2023. Coventry's own modern-day Lady Godiva, Prue Poeta, brought back an ancient feast day, Dame Goodyear's Day, that celebrated Lady Godiva, her death on September the 10th. Thanks to Prue, it's now called the Godiva Sisters and it features a most colourful event of ladies from around the world often celebrating their national heroines. I asked Prue how she started it, the Godiva Sisters. 
So how many Godiva sisters have we got? Well, we've got nearly 50, so it does make it hard. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, we started, when I started off with them, I formed a group with one, uh, but I already knew quite a few groups. But the yeah. first time I ever celebrated Godiva Day was back in um, 1998, which I did with myself, because I researched and yeah. found the feast day. 1999, I worked with children in schools. 2000, I worked with more schools. And then 2001, I introduced the sisters, and we had six sisters for the feast day and now we've got over 50. Okay. So it just shows that if you keep working, Thank it happens. Thank you very much. So how many Godiva sisters have we got? Well, we've got nearly 50, so it does make it hard. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a beautiful sight. Lady Godiva surrounded by all the Godiva sisters. Very colourful. And these banners all hanging up behind. Absolutely wonderful. So, are you a Godiva sister? I'm not a Godiva sister. I do work with Prue Peretta. Um, I am here to do a little performance with my colleagues called a Gidba, which is a skipping dance from the Punjab. Yes. Um, and it has a bolli with it. We're going to sing three bolliya. The first one is to say happy birthday to Lady Godiva. Yes. The second one is to introduce two other women um, that are very similar to Lady Godiva, were very similar because they're not alive anymore. Razia Sultan, who was the Empress of India yes, in yes. the 1200s, yes. and she was chosen to be the Empress over her brothers, yes. and there was good governance while she was there. And the third one is Princess Sapphire. Um, she was the granddaughter of the last Maharaja of the Punjab, but she was Queen Victoria's goddaughter. Really? Yeah, and um, she played a major part in the suffragette movement and votes for women. Well, that's Wonderful. So we thought, really, we ought Thank to be you acknowledging. Yes, yeah, yes. Well, what's your name? My name's Manjit Kaur. It is lovely to meet you. Thank, Thank you very, you very much. much. Thank you. Okay, I'm speaking to Ian Harris, that's involved in lots of things to do with Coventry, and also is with me in the Nostalgics, a, a singing group in Camden. Uh, so, what do you think of the Godiva Sisters, Ian? Very impressive indeed. Very uh, talented and beautiful people, and it's, uh, it's an honour and joy to be here. Thank you very much. Oh, I'm speaking to a young lady here that, that uh, looks like a female leprechaun. So, what? With, with a green hat and, and a gold band around it, and a lovely orange and green dress. Uh, so, who, who do you represent? I'm I'm Irish Godiva sister. Yeah. And we represent. We we all work with. Prue, yes. and we do lots of um, we we follow Prue round, and we do all work with Prue, yeah. and we go to events with Prue, social events and uh, things like that. We do the Godiva Sisters. There's 40 Godiva Sisters from different countries. Wow, fantastic! And uh, we do this Godiva Day every year, once yeah. a year. And it's absolutely and lovely and yes. colourful, isn't it's very it? Pretty, it's very pretty. It's a lovely event. It really and we all bring um, the, um, so all the different sisters bring food from all their different countries yeah. and we give it out to all the people so we have a Chinese food, Japanese food, Irish food etc etc so well, it's a really good day. And that sounds wonderful. Yes, it is. Uh, what's your name? Angela. 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 Thank you. Pleased okay. to meet you, Angela. Thank you. Thank you. I then spoke to listener Pat Mulqueen Wood, 
who had been meeting the dignitaries with a guide dog. Chris, Chris Norman of the Resource Centre. So, uh, how are you enjoying the uh, Godiva Sisters? Loving it. I think it's a lovely event, actually. It's very nice. There's so many different cultures, different people, different languages, and it's people of all ages, and it's just a wonderful event. My name is Krina from Romania. And thank you. Can you describe your food, please? Yeah, Looks lovely. Gingerbread. Gingerbread. Oh, wonderful. Thank you very much. I'm speaking to Claire here, who organises a transport resource centre. Great. So you're passing some food around. I'm passing food around today. What's the food? Instead of uh, sorting buses, yes. So we have um, snickerdoodles, which are an American uh, cookie. Uh, so they've got cinnamon and brown sugar, nutmeg. They're, they're, they're very autumnal. It, it feels good that I've made them, especially now it's raining, actually, and it's cooled down a bit. Thank you very much. Very nice. Thank no you. No worries. Are you a good Irish sister? I am. I am one of the inclusion sisters. They're fantastic. So. Wonderful work. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. Another one? Yes, I will. Here's a lady. Hello, what's your name? Isabel. And where are you from? I was born in Bogota, in Colombia, South America. In Colombia, wonderful. Yes. And, and you're, you're passing around strawberries? Yes, and, and I'm passing some fruit for you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Well, it's been lovely wonderful. Thank you, oh, thank, you thank you very much. I'm a sister's photographer here. Where are you? So, so, so where, where are you from? Uh, What's your name? Hello, my name is Gosha. I'm from Poland. And yes, okay. It's a very, it's a lovely, colourful event to photograph, isn't it? Yes, I love the colours and the weather today is beautiful. It's a little bit of grey. Uh, that's what makes colours clear on my pictures, which I love it. That's wonderful, thank you. Come to Lady Godiva. It's been wonderful, hasn't it? It's been a wonderful event. It's very hard work to make it happen, but it's happened and all the sisters have turned up and they look glorious in their costumes and they brought food and banners. I've had the banners all made for them and I've got the Phoenix Explorers to actually help us. They did a lot of work because as you can see now, they're doing the gazebos, they've done the chairs, they've put the stakes in. Myself and Mel did all the stakes. We did everything, put the banners together, but lots of them just come to take the photos, which is good, but it takes an awful lot of work to make it happen. The sound systems happen because of um, Dave Carriage from the Notables and his team and they've made a special sound for us so it's been a really good day today. Well it's been wonderful the Godiva sisters and so that's all for me Dave Monks from the Godiva sisters event and goodbye for me and Harris. Goodbye and God bless you all. Take care. And the Godiva sisters brings us to the end of this the first edition of Outlook for 2024. And so, wishing all a very happy and healthy 2024, it's goodbye from me, Peter Walters, and all the Outlook team. Till next week.